The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening to Pa to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 15 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello, everybody, and happy Friday to all of you. I have spent some of my week recharging and some of my week doing my typical thing. My my husband and I went down to Cape May, New Jersey for a couple days to relax and recharge and sit on the beach. Um, as a kid, I used to always go to Wildwood, New Jersey, which is right north of there, but I never made it down to Cape May. And let me tell you, it is a gorgeous town. I'm so happy that I went there as an adult because I don't know if I would have appreciated it as a kid, but there, kid, but there are Victorian homes all over. Um, we stayed in an Airbnb up in North Cape May, and we're a block away from the beach where the sunset was gorgeous. Um, we even did a dolphin tour on the water uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's so important to rest and recharge. I am really, really bad at <laughs> actually taking some time for myself. So I'm glad that we had planned that a couple weeks or a couple months in advance because we really, really needed it. After that, got back to my regular schedule, uh, and as you know, if you've heard my co- podcast before, I, I have a regular classes at Broadway Dance Center on Fridays at 6 p.m., that's Advanced Beginner Ballet, and Sundays at 6 p.m., that's Basic Ballet. Um, so if you want to join me for any of those classes, you are welcome to. Also, for the next couple of weeks, through the first week of August, I will be teaching Intermediate Contemporary on Fridays at 11.30 a.m. at Steps on Broadway, and I will be teaching Advanced Intermediate Contemporary on Sundays at 3.30 p.m. Also, for any of those people that need some professional-level ballet, I'm teaching Advanced Intermediate Ballet classes at 2.30 p.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at Steps on Broadway through the end of July. Um, beyond that, I'm doing a choreographic residency in Westchester, Pennsylvania with Nickerson Rossi Dance at uh, the Uptown Theater. So if you want to join me for that, I'll be teaching ballet and contemporary classes, and then you will have the opportunity to be in a new piece of choreography that I create. Um, and there's a performance at the end of that program. And then also I'll be doing some master classes at Uptown Dance Company. They have a school, Uptown Dance Center, which is funny because they're not the same thing. One's in Pennsylvania and one's in Houston, Texas. But this one's in Houston, Texas. I'll be doing a ballet master class on Friday, August 29th, I believe. And then a contemporary master class on Saturday, uh, August 30th. And that's at Uptown Dance Center in Houston, Texas. So if you need any of this information, you can reach out to me um, or check out my Facebook where I usually post things. So, alrighty. I want today in this episode to talk about, actually I want to share something with you because I feel like I've been talking to you a lot but I haven't really shared any uh, things about me 
about my love of dance, and I'm always sharing my love of dance with you, but um, I wanted to share 10 of my all-time favorite works with you. Uh, and I think that this is really important because I th- these are works that have inspired me to become a professional dancer, they have works that inspired me to push my career further, and to change uh, the way that I think about dance, or uh, have influenced my choreography, or really just shown me uh, how much I love the dance world. So I want to share these pieces with you um, and just, uh, just recommend that if you're curious about these pieces, if you haven't heard of them, or maybe you have heard of them but you haven't seen them, um, maybe to do some research on them. Go on, on Google and see if you can find some videos or go on YouTube and see if there are any videos of these things. So, um, Without further ado, I would like to share with you my 10 all-time favorite works. Now, just a little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A little (laughs) pre-explanation. These are only 10 works that I can think of right now. I have probably 100 works that I could name here, but these ones have just been really the most... uh, I guess they they really stand out the most in my mind. So um, there are probably tons that I could leave on here, but I'm just going to give you these ten. So the first one, here we go. I would say that this is probably the most influential work on me because it really did change the trajectory of my career. This ballet is in the middle, somewhat elevated. It's by William Forsyth. Um who I think is our Balanchine of today. This piece, it is just fascinating because it's it's performed to electronic music, and it's almost like theme on theme and variations. It's a theme on a variation. He, he chose uh, a certain set of choreography, and then he just expanded on and expanded on it and created this piece. Um, it was created back in the 80s, so to use electronic music was very revolutionary. Um, and beyond this, he had taken, where, where Balanchine was known to sort of pull the hips forward and to just get a little off, off get, get a little off the leg, maybe uh, get the leg a little higher by tilting the hips a little bit. William Forsyth really took this to a new level. His port bra ended up way behind the, the front of the body and the legs were way, way, way off balance and really uh, different lines than you'd ever seen before. So uh, this piece was quite revolutionary when it came out. It was first created uh, famous Sylvie Guillaume and uh, at the Paris Opera Ballet. So, I think it was back in 1987, but don't hold me to that. I didn't do my full research on this one, um, but, I mean, I, I've i seen it a lot, and I'll get more to that in a second. But the first time that I ever saw this, um, I didn't see it in full, but I saw it at the very first 21st, uh, stars of the 21st Century Gala in New York City when I was 15 years old. I had gone with one of my instructors, who is like my sister to me today. Her name's... Uh, Kim, Miss Kim, uh, she cha- trained me, and she had an extra ticket that somebody couldn't take, so she ended up bringing me to this gala. And it was essentially, it was a gala, it was all pas de deux. You saw White Swan, I remember seeing Lucia Lacara do White Swan, she was in San Francisco Ballet at the time, there were dancers from American Ballet Theater, I saw Marcelo Gomez when he was still in the core do uh, Black Swan, and Sleeping Beauty with Susan Joffe, um, and a bunch of other stuff. But, so we saw 
all these classical pas de deux, but then we saw a pas de deux from In the Middle Somewhat Elevated. And I remember just watching it in awe because it, there was so much power behind it and the extension was amazing. And really, the music's. I, I, I was interested in jazz and musical theater, and the music was just so cool. I watched it and I was like, I could do ballet that isn't classical um and that was just fascinating to me i i love the idea of getting to do what i enjoyed in the jazz and the musical theater stuff but i i also really enjoyed ballet so it was kind of the first time that i i felt my my two loves in dance aligning um and it really was what changed the entire trajectory of my career um so my history with this piece i uh so, okay, you know that. I saw it. And then uh, I went to Houston Ballet Summer Program. We got to learn a little bit of it. And then when I joined Houston Ballet, I was actually an understudy for the work. And I almost went on, because, as an apprentice, <laughs> I almost went on because the two of the three dancers ahead of me got injured during the process. But somebody came back a couple days before, and I, I lost that opportunity. But I got to rehearse it, uh, dance it full out, and all that. And it was just really one of my favorite, favorite pieces still is today. All right. Number two. Now, this is in no particular order. This is just the order that I thought of them. But uh, the, this work is Dark Matters by Crystal Pite. Um, Crystal Pite is amazing. She is just one of my favorite artists on earth. Um, she has her own company, and she's recently become very, very popular in the ballet world. It seemed like people were kind of picking up on her in the ballet world, and she was doing her own company thing. Um, but uh, the ballet world has really been been bringing her in a lot lately. I know Pacific Northwest Ballet has done her emergence, which she created at uh, National Ballet of Canada, and she just created a new work at the Royal Ballet. Um, so it looks like she's doing pretty well, and people are getting the idea that she's an incredible choreographer. Um, so, okay, the, when I saw Dark Matters, this was the first time that I saw a, a pike, a pite work live, not pike. Easier to say pike. Pite. P-I-T-E. I had heard whisperings about Crystal for years, but when Dark Matters came to Seattle and they released a teaser video on their, their social media, the company that was presenting them, I knew immediately that I had to have tickets to see the show. This is perhaps one of my favorite works I have ever, 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 ever seen. If I had to give like a one, two, three, this is definitely in my top three. Um, and it's been almost a decade since I've seen it, and it still is up there, and I can still remember how I felt watching it and how I felt when I left the theater. I, I didn't feel, I hadn't felt so energized and so excited and inspired in, in a long time uh, since I had seen this piece. Uh, while I had become known at Pacific Northwest Ballet for my more contemporary approach to dancing, I hadn't seen contemporary dance like this. The The first act was pure dance theater, uh, with several dancers actually controlling a stick figure that was built by the central character in his wood shop. And this doll maker, I guess you could call him, um, he brought this stick figure to life, uh, and it seems like the stick figure is becoming more and more real and it has a personality and the maker and he are getting along and then all of a sudden there the stick figure seems to take a psychotic seems to have a psychotic break it takes a turn and he ends up killing his maker at the end of the first act the entire set collapses on top of him and it's just quite <laughs> dramatic 
Um, and then after the intermission, you come back and it goes from dance theater to pure all out contemporary dance. It was just really so well done, so imaginative uh, and fascinating. His work changed my life, and it changed the way that I viewed dance, the way that I wanted to dance, and the way that I've wanted to make dance. So, I've taken a lot of inspiration from this piece. Alright, third up. Uh, changing completely. So, we've talked about uh, neoclassical ballet, uh, heading in the direction of contemporary ballet, a contemporary piece, and then now I have musical theater. <laughs> so, Wicked. Um, I love Wicked. It's choreographed by Wayne Salento. Um, and if you haven't seen this, I'm sure most of you have at least heard of it. Uh, it's a, essentially a prequel to The Wizard of Oz. I mean, who doesn't know the story of The Wizard of Oz? Wherever I go, it doesn't matter if I'm teaching small children or if I'm teaching elderly adults or anybody in between. Everybody knows The Wizard of Oz, even majority of the foreigners that I've worked with. Uh, so this classic musical tells the story of the Wicked Witch of the West before she was known as the Wicked Witch. And kind of kind of explains how she became who she was. Um, a lot of misinterpretation in there on the part of her community. But not only is the story charming and the production value tremendous, but the singing is iconic. And there is high-quality choreography and dancing throughout the entire piece. I really felt that dance was a focal point of the production. Sometimes I go to Broadway shows, and it's more about the singing and the dancing is just sort of like a side note to uh, tie it all together. But I really felt that the dance was a major integral part of this production. Alright, where are we now? That's number three. Number four. Maybe I should have done this. This one was number three, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, Symphony in Three Movements. Get it? Three movements. Um, often people just refer to this as Symphony in Three, and this is a Balanchine work. The year that I, I spent at School American Ballet was kind of an odd one when it came to viewing ballet. First off, I was surrounded by a bunch of Balanchine-obsessed dancers who knew the history of New York City Ballet and its dancers like the back of their hand. I was raised more on the dancers and rep of American Ballet Theater because I was watching the DVDs that were coming out back back then, and I hadn't really learned much about New York City Ballet at the time. I didn't really get it, especially because I attended the School American Ballet the year before the Balanchine Centennial. In order to save most of the excitement of the works that were going to be put on for the Balanchine Centennial, New York City Ballet barely performed any of Balanchine's iconic works. Um, they planned on doing revivals of a handful and just putting on his best one. So they, they kind of left us with <laughs> some subpar works and also just works by other, other choreographers. Um, so I was trying to get into this excitement of New York City Ballet, training at the School of American Ballet, and all of these dancers around me were talking about certain dancers and how they were stars, and I didn't quite get it. Um, and then... I finally saw a, a fantastic Balanchine work that year that they, they still allowed it to be put on before the Centennial, now the Symphony in Three Movements. Um, I started to get it at this point. 
with the core women opening the ballet and standing in a long line waiting for the first note to wind their arms like the propellers of airplanes, to the Bentony awesome blade jumps that flew through the air, to the quirky pas de deux in the middle of the first and third movement, and the typical Balanchine finale with the entire massive cast dancing in unison, this work is a masterpiece. I was so lucky that after viewing this many times as a student, I got to dance it many times as a professional. I danced it, I think, at least two or three programs at Pacific Northwest Ballet. I think two. So I probably performed this at least 10 to 15 times. Uh, I loved dancing it. It was it had great energy, and I still love watching it today. All right, fifth one. Now, this one, I, I my memory is starting to fade a little bit on it, but I just really re- I wanted to include it because it was such a... A fascinating piece for me. So this was another one that came through the same theater. I can't remember the name of the theater in Seattle, um, but it was the same one that Crystal Pite presented Dark Matters. Um, and this was a work called Construct by Tanya Liedke. And Tanya Liedke was a German-born choreographer that uh, she was, she has a crazy story. She was about to take the reins of the Sydney Dance Company in Australia. I think this was back in 2007. But she had she had gone out for the the evening with her husband or boyfriend and she went home and she was i guess had a lot of uh things happening in her head i mean she's about to take over directorship of a of a major company so she decided to go for a walk at midnight and during that walk she was tragically killed in an accident where she was hit by a trash truck while walking right before she took that post tragic uh, so this was this was my introduction to Miss Leakey's work uh, when I was in Seattle, and the piece was uh, it was a fascinating introduction, or at least a, a, an awareness awakening moment to the genre of dance theater. Back then, I think it was around 2007, I was mostly used to seeing ballet productions. I'd been to a few Broadway shows, I'd seen some modern dance, but I'd never really heard of dance theater, didn't really know much about it. So this was kind of my introduction. Uh, With only three dancers dancing throughout the entire piece, the music changed from the sound of power tools to more classical arrangements. Uh, They constructed things on stage, they deconstructed things, they put each other together like they were constructing things, these three dancers. It was the first time that I had seen live nudity in a work, and it wasn't just... uh, they didn't just get naked for the sake of being naked. It actually was relevant to the work. So that this piece, it grabbed me with its charm, its demand on the three dancers. There was a, like an hour-long piece, and they, they were on stage the entire time. Uh, and it also grabbed me with its innovation. It really showed me that dance could be more than just... Uh, full, pure dance on stage. There could be so much more involved in a production than just pure dance. And I really appreciate that. Alright, so we're halfway through now, people. Here we are. Next one up, number six. A Midsummer's Night Dream. This is a Balanchine Ballet. Um, So this was the first Balanchine Ballet that I ever saw live. Um, New York City Ballet nearly always finishes their spring season with this work. It's almost as much of a mainstay in the company's repertoire as Nutcracker. I'm sure they don't make as much money off of it, but they perform it probably uh, as frequently as Nutcracker, just not for an entire month, maybe for two weeks. The timing of the end of City Ballet season back then coincided with the first week of the beginning of the School of American Ballet's summer intensive. 
So we got to go watch it as a part of the intensive. I remember very uh, clearly watching Puck running and executing consecutive soda shahs around the stage and then grabbing a flower so that he could turn these loving lovers and to confuse lovers <laughs> using the magic of the flower and they wander about the stage confused about who is in love with who. I also remember being charmed by the butterflies and the dance was amazing and all that. So after watching that I told myself that one day I would dance the role of Puck and I actually realized that dream in my next-to-last program, Dancing with Pacific Northwest Ballet, which was a thrilling accomplishment for me and definitely a career highlight. It was one of my favorite experiences I've ever had on stage because you just get to act like a mad, crazy nymph, like running around the stage and creating drama, not like horrible drama, but like fun, goofy drama. It was just a blast. I've danced so many roles in this ballet that I can't even keep count. Um, I did Bottom, which is the, the guy who becomes the donkey. I've done the divertisement couples in the second act. I've done a, a couple other things in there. So uh, I, I know this production very well. I really love it. We danced the, it at least three times during my seven seasons at Pacific Northwest Ballet. So I have fond memories of this charming masterwork, and I've performed it probably close to 30 times, if not more. All right, next up. So this is my next two. They're not completely specific pieces, but I felt that they were important for me to talk about. So um, I would say anything Cirque du Soleil. I I know that this is circus, but it's there's tons of great dance in it and acrobatics and theater and whatnot. Um, especially Dralion. It's one of my favorite ones. It was the first one that I saw, and there was some really interesting stuff from a contortionist to this guy juggling. That's also a contortionist. Um, and I remember women doing point work on light bulbs with extension up to their ears. To the front. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, if you have a chance to see anything Cirque du Soleil, the production quality of these are amazing. And it really, truly is like you are going for an hour and a half, two hours, and you get transported into this trippy, trippy dream world. I think that Cirque du Soleil is just fantastic. Um, all right, just got three more. Number eight, uh, favorite works of mine, Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet has such a special place in my heart, kind of along the same lines of Midsummer Night Dream. Um, the first ballet that I ever danced professionally was, uh, Romeo and Juliet. It was Macmillan's version. And I danced with... American Ballet Theater. It's a long story that I'm not going to go into, but I was still dancing at the School of American Ballet, and they they had some illnesses and injuries, and they needed some extra dancers. It was before they had their JKO school. So I was hired as a trial period with American Ballet Theater, and they are considering me to dance with the company uh, the following season. So I actually got to perform on tour at the Kennedy Center with American Ballet Theater, Romeo and Juliet, and a fun part of that story is that I was David Hallberg's second cast <laughs> uh, when he would go in to perform Benvolio, and that was when he was still in the core. He hadn't even done Romeo yet at that point. Um, I think he'd been in the core for like a year or two, and he was already doing 
leading roles. So, um, I was David Holbrook's second cast, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, I think parts of the reason, one part of the reason aside from that, it was what my first ballet as a professional is that, that, that I enjoy this so much is because, uh, the Prokofiev score is just such an incredible work of art. You don't even need to see movement or dance to it. It tells the story, uh, just through the music. So, uh, it's just such a, an amazing, amazing work. And to add dance on top of it, it's just an incredible thing. So, uh, I, I think part of the reason that I am, I feel so closely tied to Romeo and Juliet is because, like, A Midsummer Night Dream, I've practically danced every single role that a man can perform in this ballet, except for Benvolio and Tybalt. Um, I started in the core, I've done Capulets, I've done Montagues, I've done the Macmillan version, I've done Kent Stowell's version, and then at Pacific Northwest Ballet, uh, we did Jean-Christophe Melo's version twice, and I actually got to do Mercutio there, which was another career highlight of mine. It's just fun to be wild and crazy and a goofball on stage, and that was, that was kind of that role. Um... From there, I actually had what I consider my my final performance of my career, dancing with Fort Wayne Ballet, doing, again, going back to the beginning, doing the Macmillan version of Romeo and Juliet, uh, and I got to dance Romeo. So, uh, this ballet just holds a special place in my heart. I know the story in and out. I know the emotion in and out. I know the music in and out. And it's just such a, a lovely work of art, no matter which version you're doing. All right. Number nine, almost at the end. This piece uh, is Shoot the Moon by Lightfoot Leon. And uh, I almost never got to see this work that was created by these directors, these co-directors of Netherlands Dance Theater. I was dancing for Brock Ballet in Santa Monica back in 2013 when Netherlands Dance Theater was on tour and they went to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion with a triple bill that shared, uh, there were two other pieces that shared this work in an evening program. The first try, some fellow dancers and I got stuck in nightmarish Friday night LA traffic. We spent three hours driving from Santa Monica to downtown LA and we still missed the show by over a half hour, which if you've ever been to LA, that won't shock you. We somehow were able to charm the ticket salesman to change our tickets for something like $10 each. And the funny thing is that we paid $10 more and we ended up getting seats that were like 10 times better than what we had. So the value was, we got way more for our value. Um, and we got to see the show the next day. Thank God this worked out, because this piece was just an immensely moving, dramatic, and perspective-altering work. Shoot the Moon isn't only danced fluidly and meticulously in a quirky, contemporary manner by the Dancers of Netherlands Dance Theater. It utilizes so many aspects of theater, again, a dance theater piece, to make it a thrilling masterpiece. From a rotating set that encompasses three tackily wallpapered rooms with windows, doors, and furniture, you also get to see the dance from the front through a window and projected in silent movie style black and white above the rotating set throughout the entire work. It really is just such a uh, an interesting, unique piece that really pushes the boundaries of what dance can be and what dance theater can be. Throw some Philip Glass in his hauntingly moving second movement of the Tyrol Concerto, concerto, and you just have a masterpiece of epic proportions. I keep on trying to find uh, 
footage of this on YouTube that really represents what I felt when I saw the piece uh, to show some of my students, and they're just small clips online. So this is one that you're probably going to have to see in person. All right, number 10 to round out my 10 favorite works of all time, which was kind of a lie because I have so many works, but these ones just really stand out. Um, I've talked about this a little bit before. Rubies, Balanchine's Rubies, which is probably the work that I've danced the most in my career. I remember the first time that I saw this piece. San Francisco Ballet was touring to New York City Center when I was a student at SAB. So like I told you, I didn't really get to see a lot of Balanchine at New York City Ballet, but I was lucky, or at New York City Ballet when I was at the School of American Ballet, but I was lucky that uh, I, I had a few opportunities to see a few things, and this was one of them. The Stravinsky music for Rubies starts with so much power and energy with the curtain down, and then right as the music fades, the curtain rises to a tableau of dancers posed on point, and Demi Point spread across the stage, staring at the audience ready to fire. Uh, they're all holding hands, it's just a really cool pose. All of a sudden, the music starts back up and everybody starts dancing, and it's just flies from there. When I saw this work, I knew that I needed to dance lots of Balanchine in my career. And <laughs> lo and behold, when it came to the end, I had danced this piece at least 30 times, and I loved it more and more every time I did it. I think I performed it in three or four programs at Pacific Northwest Ballet, and then we performed it in two programs at the Vail International Dance Festival. Um, I can't think of it anywhere else. I, I, this is the piece that I danced in my last show with PNB at our end-of-the-year gala. They, they had done this for a friend of mine and I who were uh, not retiring but leaving the company that year. I have seen more shows than I can point out in this podcast, and I have every single program hiding away in a couple of places from my apartment, my mom's house, she loves that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've got every single program from every production I've ever been to. There are so many other works that I have loved and could probably add to this list as well, but I should probably stop at a nice round 10. If you don't know these works, again, I suggest that you do some research on YouTube or Google, as many of them, to find clips of them online, or to find the whole, some of them even have the whole versions posted online, um, or just check out your local dance companies and see if they're performing them, or if you're in a big enough city where tours come through, maybe see if there are any companies touring with these works. I strongly suggest them. I'm curious if you could name a few of your absolute favorite works that feature dance as a main aspect of uh, the, the productions, which ones would you choose? Feel free to let me know by reaching out to me via my website contact page, and perhaps I'll share a few of your favorites in a future episode of Pod of Chat. Uh, for those of you that don't know, you can find that contact page at www.barrycorollis.com. Again, that's www.barrycorollis.com. So, with that, I'm going to bring this week's episode to a close. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me via my website contact page that I just mentioned previously. You can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book masterclasses in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. 
If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. New hosts from your favorite dance companies are being added monthly. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram where my name is B. Corollas, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to subscribe to my blog, Life of a Freelance Dancer, where I've been writing about working as a freelance artist for over five years. I also have a YouTube channel where you can view my choreography at the handle B. Corollas. Thanks for listening in to Pod the Chats. I hope you return next Friday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene.